0: Welcome to the Start Me Up podcast, part of the DemCast Network. I'm Kimberly Johnson, quarantined in D.C. Today, my returning guest is Rebecca Sive. She's the author of Vote Her In, and Every Day is Election Day, A Woman's Guide to Winning Any Office. So guess what we're going to be talking about today? (laughs) Definitely, we're going to be talking about AOC, Kamala Harris, and women in office and running for office. And also, we're going to be talking about the new administration, all of it, impeachment, all of it. It's going to be a great show. Now, please keep in mind, I try to keep these intros short under three minutes. So the Start Me Up podcast is an independent podcast supported by listeners, and it's woman-run. I have no corporate backers, and I don't use ads yet. (laughs) It's patrons who keep the show going. So if you enjoy today's show, please take a look at the About page. And you can see some of my past guests. You can see that mostly I have conversations with or interview political people. But I also occasionally talk to actors about their craft because I used to be an actor. So I love talking to them about that. So if you enjoy the show, just consider becoming a patron just like two bucks a month. You can always upgrade. This is what I do. I do two free shows on Mondays and Wednesdays. And then after each free show, I do a show for patrons only. That's just me. I talk about whatever I feel like talking about that day, whether it's political or body image or whatever I'm feeling in that moment. And then I, I've been doing two patrons-only shows per month with Steph Walton, but Steph just got a job. So I'm going to let her tell you what that job is, and it's really freaking awesome. But anyway, I think she's going to be here next week to do that. Just visit patreon.com slash startmeup, and you can also make a one-time donation. You could just go to the text of every show that I do, and I always include my email address, and you can use that for PayPal. You can also find Start Me Up on iTunes, Stitcher, and wherever podcasts are found. Just stop by the iTunes slash Apple Podcast Store site. Become a subscriber because it's free. And while you're there, please, please give me a rating. That would be awesome, and especially a review. And they don't have to be long reviews, but if you leave one, thank you so much. Thank you for everyone who's done it. Okay, please enjoy my conversation with Rebecca Sive. Welcome back to the show, Rebecca. Oh, Kim, thanks so much for having me. There's just
1: so much to talk about. And I'm glad we can uh, share our thoughts about what's going on these days.
0: Yes, there's a lot to talk about. And I love talking to you for a couple of reasons. Number one, you write about women and you write about, you know, women in office and the importance of it and everything that goes along with it, which I really appreciate. And then you also provide me with all the awesome questions. And, and I really <laughs> like that because I mean, as a podcaster, especially when I'm interviewing authors or, or experts on any subject, you know, it really helps when you give. So I'm going to go off the questions that you offered. Um, uh-huh. So before we do that, though, there is actually I do want to talk about AOC and that's kind of my thing. But I just wanted to say, first of all, I mean, I know that you're relieved because we're all relieved and now we have a woman as a vice president, but we're also going through this ridiculous, I mean, ridiculous is not even the right word. But this, this experience of white supremacy rising, the Republican Party is behaving like, I mean, we've never seen anything like this. This is just insanity. And next week, we're going to go through that impeachment trial. And I know there's some, some questions that you provided for me that do you know, focus on that, especially where women are concerned. But just in general, how are you feeling about this impeachment thing. What what do you think, or I should say the conviction part, hopefully they will convict, but I don't think they will. But what do you think of this Senate thing that's going to happen next week?
1: Well, I guess the way I really feel is it's, you know, first of all, it's so sad that we have to go through this again. Mm -hmm. And it's demoralizing because there's so much important work to do and legislation to be discussed. But on the other hand, it's, you know, it's necessary. We can't have a situation in which a president or any other, you know, public official for that matter is so egregiously misbehaving and inciting riots and seditious behavior. Yeah. So we just have to go through it, grin and bear it. I guess we can listen if we want to and just have confidence that the senators and the impeachment managers, you know, are going to do what needs to be done.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I I hope so. I mean, I don't have a lot of faith the fact, you know, that they're going to convict him. But then I know the DOJ can prosecute him and do an investigation on their own. And everything that's going to come out in this trial will, you know, definitely be of use to the DOJ. And it's already out there anyway. I mean, he, he was publicly saying these things. So it's not like, you know, we have to dig very far or dig, you know, work hard to find that stuff.
1: Well, you're right. There's no question that, you know, all the DOJ and other uh, jurisdictions are going to have plenty of uh, activity as it relates to Donald Trump, considering what he did while he was in office. So, you know, that's obviously important. It'll go on. It'll probably go rather slowly. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, impeachment is a unique uh, circumstance. And I'm hoping that even if they don't convict that, you know, people will have heard more about this Mm -hmm. than they may have heard previously they'll hear from important people about what happened to them
0: yeah yeah well, well, we'll see what happens there. You know, as Rachel Maddow says, watch this space. <laughs> That's the first time I've ever stolen from Rachel Maddow. Okay, right. so um, let's dig right in. And I want to talk, you had uh, sent me a talking point, and I think this was interesting, about the devastating impact of the pandemic on women's opportunities in the workplace, both today and in the future. So what is that? Talk about that.
1: Well, the thing that I wanted to share and have your listeners be aware of. And for us to consider is the fact that uh, the kinds of jobs that have been so decimated by this pandemic have been jobs that are predominantly held by women, Mm -hmm. you know, in the service industry and healthcare and so on. And as a result, for instance, in those most recent uh, unemployment figures, the whole, set of job losses was among women workers it's just an astounding circumstance and when you add on to that the number of women who've cut back on their jobs who haven't taken promotions who are now working part-time because they have primary responsibilities at home it's really a um, depression so to speak for women workers and a sort of Um, barrier in some sense that they're going to have to get over to future growth and accomplishment. It it just really uh, has been written about quite a bit, but I think that, you know, the thing here is for us all to take the full measure of it. You know, by some accounts, people are saying that women workers have been, you know, pushed back decades just
0: because of how many women have suffered deeply. That's pretty upsetting, and you know, I mean, so so in the future, I mean, what do you, um, how are you feeling just in general about? Obviously, we've got some issues with the vaccine. There should be more. We, you know, I think I heard on Chris Hayes the other night. He said more people have been vaccinated than have fallen ill with COVID, but at the same time, that number should be a lot larger. So I'm I'm wondering, do you have any idea? when the workforce might just be back to normal
1: well it's a complicated thing because you know on the one hand when people permanently drop out of the workforce they're not counted as unemployed right right so if they just withdraw they're not in the mix and so right now as i understand it the so to speak unemployment number across the board looks you know better than it did for instance seven or eight months ago but if you add to that people who work part-time, people who work off the books, people who are looking but haven't reported to unemployment offices, the numbers are huge. And so I think that the real issue here is not what is classically defined as full employment, right, which, as I said, doesn't take into account too many people, but Whether, you know, we can look around us and see that everyone who wants to work is, in fact, able to work Mm -hmm. and not having been discouraged. And I think that some of the things we need to look to are, for instance, the kinds of uh, activities that happened during the 1930s when FDR was president and, you know, he put people to work. He gave them jobs. I don't know whether Joe Biden has that kind of thing in mind, but I do think it's going to be necessary if if we're going to recover in any sort of expeditious timetable.
0: Yeah. Wow. Oh, well, it's all just so fun, isn't it? (laughs)
1: Well, well, you know, the other thing is people are resilient. I mean, I'm, I'm old enough to remember, for instance, stories about, you know, my parents grew up during the depression and, you know, what they did, what their families did, you know, they found a way to survive. It shouldn't have been so hard. Um, but they did come out the other end of it. So the question here is whether we can come out the other end of it short of a war, which is, of course, what ended it back then. Right. And so, um, but I, I, I kind of feel that there's a level of consciousness now among a broader array of people about what may be required.
0: Yeah. Well, um, I, I kind of want to talk to you about um, Kamala Harris now. And it's so exciting that she's I mean, it's just so exciting that we have a woman vice president. But I want to say that we should have already had a woman president m- more than one. So as much as I love to celebrate breaking this glass ce- ceiling in this country, it's like, I mean, we're <laughs> looking at New, yeah, New Zealand's got a woman leading and they don't have any COVID cases when they had like they, they took it down to nothing. And then there was like four cases that popped up. She closed everything back down. She had it all under control. So, you know, I just I feel like as much as I want to celebrate Kamala Harris and I completely do, it's just so frustrating that. She, we only are dealing with the vice president now when we should have had you know, women of color uh, you know, at the top seat. We should have had just women in general. And it's just so frustrating. So I'm just wondering, um, what do you think the... Okay, I want to ask you, like, what do you think the impact of her... And this is based on one of the things that you said. Um, the impact of Kamala Harris on increasing the number of influence of women ex- in executive offices. So like governors, mayors, county executives, et cetera, et cetera. You
1: know, the thing of it is, to go back to your first point, it's crushing to me and I think to millions of women that, of course, we know this, that Hillary Clinton wasn't elected in 2016. She was, you know, she did win the popular vote. She was eminently qualified and all the rest. Um, And then I think it was crushing again. I think the last time we talked about all this, there were, you know, several U.S. women senators who were in the mix and running strong campaigns, including Harris. Ultimately, you know, we reverted back to an older white man. And while Joe Biden is pro-choice and pro-women and all of that, there's just a whole lot of difference that a woman sitting behind Mm. that desk would make, I believe, for women and girls. So it is depressing. On the other hand, I was thinking about this and talking to some of my friends about it. And, you know, actually on another show I did about the fact that if you'd asked any one of us, say, You know, six or seven years ago, much less, say, a decade, which in the scheme of things isn't that long. Whether we would have in this country a woman of color as vice president, Mm -hmm. I don't think anyone could have. Maybe Kamala Harris knew she was going to be able to do it, but short of her. So, uh, you know, you can't be what you can't see, that old expression. Mm -hmm. I think that we can't underestimate the power of the fact that she is so utterly different to state the obvious yeah. From any VP who has preceded her, so I've got high hopes for women and girls looking at her and feeling that there's something there they can go after. And then, of course, the question becomes, what is she going to do? Right? You know, in that position, and we don't really know that yet.
0: Yeah. Well, and then how do you think? Do you, like how do you think it's going to, or how would you guess? Like, I mean, do you think it's going to be a pers- different perspective because of the fact that she's a woman and she's going to see. All of the same issues that we deal with day in and day out or what a vice president would deal with, but because it's through the lens of a woman, um, a female perspective, do you think that there will be, I guess, nuances to that?
1: I think there'll be more than nuances. I think she's actually been fairly frank about not so much the particulars of certain policies, but the notion that she brings her own lived experience as a woman of color uh, to her job. And so I think that the question will be what particular sort of policy agenda, portfolio does she take on, number one? Number two, what are the sort of messages that she takes on or is empowered to take on as she you know, travels around the United States and Mm -hmm. around the world. I mean, just having, you know, a woman vice president going to represent the country, you know, in other places, I think could make a world of difference in how uh, people perceive the United States, Mm -hmm. maybe even how much they're willing to uh, give us the benefit of the doubt after these last, you know, horrible four years.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, that's hard. I I think about that a lot. I think about how we look on the world stage. And if if I were, you know, a leader in France or Germany, or something like that, I I would, I I, frankly, I would be concerned. And and it's not because so much of it's because of the fact that there are so many people, I mean, seven, how many, 74 million people voted for Donald Trump this time around. And that freaks me out. And, you know, I mean, I I, granted Joe Biden got seven more seven million more votes than he did. But but Trump got more votes than any other presidential candidate outside of Joe Biden. And that is horrifying. And what that tells me is that if I were, you know, the leader of another country, I would just be looking at every election. I wouldn't be I would be worried right now. I mean, and I see what you're saying, that, you know, if we have a woman who's a good leader and shows, to be, shows herself to be a good leader, that, you know, perhaps that could ease some of those concerns. But I think more so the concerns are coming from our voter base. You know, these people are not educated in so many instances. And they're, you know, I mean, these people who were crashing and rioting and basically performing an insurrection didn't even vote, some of them. They didn't even they they were going to kill Mike Pence for Donald Trump and they didn't even vote. They admitted it. And so it's like that just freaks me out. I, I, you know, I hope that in dealing with this specific topic of this insurrection of this capital failed, I should say failed insurrection, although people did die, not the people they wanted to die, but people did die. Um, I, I I think that. Kamala Harris will have a really interesting role as a former prosecutor, even though she's not going to be prosecuting anybody. It'll just be interesting to watch her reaction to how, because I really think that it so much of how other leaders see us and the direction of our country is going to depend on how we handle this attack at the Capitol.
1: Well, I think that's right. But, you know, it's also true. And, you know, for better or for worse, that there are just, you know, a thousand to do tasks on the foreign policy agenda. You know, just look at what happened the other day in Myanmar. I mean, they have to, they being the president and the vice president, you know, have to respond daily to all of these Uh, matters. And so they have a daily opportunity, which I think is important to show not only to the people in the other countries, and your point is very well taken about that, you know, what it is they're committed to doing and that they're going to stay the course, Mm -hmm. but they also have that chance to show to people here. And I think that while I'm no kind of Pollyanna, <laughs> I do think that the sort of crush of the daily work and how they resolve it, how they address it, they announced today a you know, plan to get vac- vaccines directly to pharmacies and big box stores, for instance, mm-hmm. which is hugely important to every voter, certainly to those uh, rural voters who depend on those kind of stores. Yeah. So I'm sort of hopeful that... <laughs> Uh, that 74 million people you know, will see some benefits from this administration. And while they may not change sort of deep in their hearts, they will recognize that seditious behavior isn't going to get them what they need to get right. for themselves and their families.
0: <laughs> yeah, let's hope. Um, that's just, I, I mean, I, I can take a look at what happened, and I, I've never, I never thought I would see anything like that. I mean, it's just, I think a lot of us feel that way. But, yes. you know, I mean, and I I am hopeful about the impeachment because I'm, or, you know, the Senate, I, it's, he's already been impeached, but you know what I mean, the impeachment hearings that are coming up. Um, I'm hopeful because, as you said, there's going to be a lot that comes out and that, you know, that might help to change the way the public sees it, especially because, like, for instance, one of my family members is, uh, well, she's a Trump supporter. I don't, I haven't talked to her since the election. And well, yeah, no, I did actually talk to her at Christmas time. So we hadn't yet nothing had happened as far as the attack on the Capitol and all this stuff that's gone on with, you know, his lawyers quitting and all that good stuff. But I'm like, I'm afraid to talk to her. I, I never ask her about politics because I don't want to get in a fight with her because we just completely disagree. But I, I feel like I'm so curious as to what she thinks of it. You know, like, is she okay with that? I know that she was okay with Cheney and Bush, you know, doing war crimes and what they did. She was all right with that. But, I mean, is she okay with people attacking the Capitol? And, I mean, I, I don't know how she would feel, honestly, and I hate to say this. I, I don't know if she would be like, it's okay they wanted to kill, that they wanted to kill Speaker Pelosi. But, like, would she be okay with the fact that they wanted to kill Mike Pence, And I I feel like, oh, my God, I'm related to this person, Mm -hmm. and I don't even know if she would feel that way. Yeah, No,
1: I I have had conversations with people that I know, not any family members, but friends, uh, who clearly feel very differently than I do. I think what I come back to here is that... that task of always finding some sort of common agenda item, no matter how small it is. And I say this because in my early years in organizing, I was really trained in the Saul Alinsky style. And his whole premise, which you probably know, was find an issue in the community that people across the board are really concerned about Mm -hmm. and fight hard on that and win on it if you possibly can. And then you can go on to for instance, more problematic issues or bigger issues mm-hmm. or more complex ones. Yeah. And while that's a slow process, I think going back to what we were talking about before about getting everybody jobs, raising the minimum wage, mm-hmm. which is now on the table, is just hugely important to yeah. people maybe even sort of taking a breath and <laughs> yeah. you know finding a way at least to talk to each other.
0: Yeah, which is hard because, I mean, right now, I, I earlier – Today I tweeted out that I I mean I'm I consider myself to be progressive, although I recognize that Joe Manchin, who I don't really like very much, he votes with the Democrats 40% of the time. I'd rather have him in there than somebody like Lauren Boebert. And I know that like Trump won West Virginia big. It's a very red state, and I hear these progressives are talking about you know primarying Joe Manchin with a progressive, and I I get concerned that you know maybe a progressive would beat him in the primary and then lose to somebody like, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene or Lauren Boebert. And then, and then what? I I mean, you know, Joe Manchin Mm -hmm. drives me nuts. I don't like the dude, but I don't want to lose that seat. And, you know, as much as I think it's important to focus on other states and other seats, every, every state is important. It's not that we can, like, I'm not saying write off West Virginia, but at this point it's not, it's not strategically Um, strategically, I should say, it's not the best idea to focus on West Virginia right now. I think there are other places that we could go focus to where we can afford if, you know, where we would be able to afford this seat if we lost it. But I don't think that we could really ever afford to lose any of it. Because once we lose it, getting it back is really hard, especially in a really red state. So of course, I'm getting attacked. Either people agree with me, or they're just hating on me on Twitter today. And, and 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 I think I'm just trying to make that point. Like what you're saying is sometimes as much as progressives, and I consider myself one, don't like that it's an incremental change. They don't like that. But we're living in a country where 74 million people voted for I mean, the list goes on, um, a con man, a mobster, someone who has been accused of rape. I mean, just again, the list goes on and they voted for him and we have to deal with them. We can't just go, oh, purity, purity, purity. I think we should have this and, you know, screw the Democrat. We're going to primary that Democrat with a progressive. And then and they don't see that it, it, it could hurt all of us.
1: Well, the qu- the question sometimes is, for instance, take Ohio, which you know went for Trump which has voted republican in a number of the last presidential races one of their senators is Sherrod Brown who is by any lights by any progressive a local progressive senator right mm-hmm. and he is uh, successful in the state of Ohio. So the interesting question to me is, you're absolutely right. We don't want to primary people from the left who are then going to lose the whole kit and caboodle. That's not a plan. But there is an opportunity now for congressional races, perhaps not Senate races, to identify the sort of Sherrod Browns of the world, yeah, right? People right. who know how to run in A community that's, you know, red and blue or predominantly red even and focus on issues that, you know, reach across the board. Mm -hmm. So I'm sort of excited by that. Interesting. opportunity.
0: Well, you know, I will say this. Bernie Sanders went to West Virginia and he convinced a bunch of their of those voters to want, you know, to 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 be in favor of Medicare for all. And so I would say that if it's the right progressive, if it's somebody who knows how to sell, sell it. And you know what? That goes back to my argument. I've been saying this now for a week and I'm not letting go of it. I'm going to talk to anybody who has any influence that I, you know, Democrats need help when it comes to educating the public on how they either have benefited them in the past or how they will in the future. That's one thing, no matter what you feel about Bernie Sanders, he's really good at. I, I think that Elizabeth Warren was also good at it but but I think when you talk to people about those basic things whether it's you know just putting food on the table paying for health care getting your kids through school all of that we all have those concerns and desires and if the if the person who is you know selling their platform whether it's a Republican or a Democrat if they're able to convince that voter that their way is best then they're going to win so but, you know, I mean, it's it just there's also that idea that we're when Bernie Sanders convinced those people in West Virginia to want Medicare, that was I don't even know where Q was at that point. I mean, we're I don't remember hearing that there were people who thought liberals ate babies. And now right. there's a huge chunk of this population who mm-hmm. they either think that or they go along with people who think that.
1: Well, you know, one of the things, I mean, I'm glad you brought up Bernie Sanders because you're exactly right. He was able to talk to uh, a number of Trump voters, and you hear that when you uh, listen to interviews from from those people. And there's some history of that, you know, going back, for instance, Huey Long in the 1930s. There are many people who thought he was a dictator and all of that, Mm -hmm. but, you know, he had a a very populist plan that gained some traction among non-traditional voters for so to speak progressive issues mm-hmm. so there is this question about whether in times that are as bad as these right mm-hmm. as they were then there is an opportunity for other people whom we may not have heard of yet who can do like bernie did right or or who can do like uh, elizabeth warren did and i think that you know looking at some of these states and where these state legislatures are Changing, there's significant opportunity for younger people who have that kind of orientation and skill to run and see what they can get done.
0: Hmm. Yeah, definitely that that would be awesome. I also want to kind of go back to Kamala and talk about her husband. So she, so he's the second gentleman. <laughs> That's so awesome. And right. um, uh, so like how. Could this affect an ongoing discussion of women's roles, balancing career and marital partnership?
1: <laughs> you know, I never was big on the life work balance idea, because I think for most women, that's a fallacy, right? You uh-huh. got to do what you got to do. And yeah. Just sort of try to make it work. But I do think that in this case, the fact that you know he is so clearly supportive of her personally and politically and mm-hmm. he has also given up his job which yeah. would have you know created some challenges for him right. to be even more supportive i think is a huge message mm-hmm. and so the question then becomes you know what else does he do just as we still have that open question with the vice president does he you know take on sort of so to speak non controversial issues the way so many mm. Uh, second ladies have done or does he really step out and I think it's an interesting um, sort of dynamic whether we can see whether uh, this second gentleman can set a precedent uh, for taking on tough issues really messaging on significant matters Um, we don't know that yet but I'm kind of hoping that he creates a path for that
0: Hmm. wow that would be really cool and it's going to be so exciting to watch how this plays out since it's the first time ever. And I mean, I guess it shouldn't be that there are other women in in the world who run countries and they're married. And, (laughs) you know, I mean, it'll, but it will be interesting to see how this goes. I also wanted to ask you about this whole thing with AOC. It's, it's very upsetting to me, but on the other hand, um, I'm kind of grateful. And I'll explain both, uh, that, that things are playing out the way they're playing out. So she did a Instagram the other night, where she was talking about what happened that day in the Capitol. But she, she said that she was sexually assaulted and all of a sudden here come the mansplainers dismissing her, writing her off, mocking her. In fact, there was this guy on my Facebook page who said she shouldn't have cried and that it, 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 it basically she lost power when she cried that she should have gone to her girlfriends in private and cried. And so I told him it was sexist and, uh, you know, and, and I, I can't, and I can't remember exactly what else I said, but I said she was showing human emotion and, and anyway, so fortunately, and this is where I think it's a positive. There were plenty of men and this was on my Facebook page. So there were plenty of men who came in and took up for AOC instead, like, cause this guy didn't back down. Of course, what he told me is I'm not, a star. that wasn't sexist. And it's like, okay, but, um, it was, and, you know it's all I think the same could be said, like you know Barack Obama cried during his presidency when those children were murdered, and I don't remember I think it was sandy hook i, I don't yes, remember it was. um mm-hmm. you know and and nobody I, I don't remember if people faulted him, maybe Republicans faulted him for that, I don't know but and they probably did. But the thing is, is I I don't think we should have leaders. I mean, John Boehner was crying all the effing time. He was constantly crying, and right. you know, it was like I don't necessarily want leaders who are are crying all the time. But you know, Hillary caught a lot of shit for crying when she was running in 2008, and it's like, oh my God, we're human beings. We have feelings and emotions, and I don't think that we should try to hide them. I mean, I'm not running for office, and I'm not, you know, an elected official or anything. But when I found out that Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, and then I found out that Mitt Romney was okay to go forth on this, you know, Amy Coney Barrett thing, I completely lost my mind. And I did a podcast where I was like sobbing. I just sobbed my way through the podcast because I was unable right. to not sob. And, you know, it, it, I, I, I was sobbing so hard before the podcast even started that my boyfriend thought someone died. You know, he heard me and he's like, what's going on? And, and I was just mm-hmm. and it was, it was freaking me out because it was like, I don't want to lose my health care. I don't want to lose what we may lose because of this this person who's going to be confirmed in like five seconds. And um, anyway, so I'm going off on a rail. But the thing is, is with AOC, she's she's getting all this crap. And the one thing that I'm feeling really good about is there are so many men online now who are taking up for her. And I could tell you when I first started being vocal online, which was in 2012, there was a different feel. Men were not it's not that they would necessarily choose to dismiss, but they, they weren't so quick to take up. They, they either stayed quiet or they criticized. And now I'm finding, I think, and I really do believe it's because of the way this has been framed on social media, that men are seeing this and going, I get it. You know, this, yes, this makes sense. And, you know, she shouldn't be treated that way. And it's terrible for other men who, you know, like Michael Tracy, who are discounting her uh, sexual assault. Um, I mean, I don't know if you've seen that, but have you seen, let's say, over the course of the decade, a difference Mm -hmm. in the way men are responding to women no matter what they say?
1: I, I think I do see that. I think that people's consciousness has been raised, including men. I also think that because in particular, AOC is so powerful in so many ways that You know, the fact that um, some men are criticizing her, perhaps some women are criticizing her, too. No doubt they are. Mm -hmm. It's not going to matter in the long run. I mean, (laughs) sexual assault, domestic violence, rape, these are, you know, tragedies that are prevalent in our culture. And so many women, for instance, uh, know what that's about. And so they are going to stay there, I believe, right with her on the fact that she experienced this. It was horrible. She's still suffering from it and going to want to, um, if not be supportive of other things she does, Mm -hmm. uh, be supportive of the fact that she's been honest and Mm -hmm. sharing and wanting to, you know, be strengthened by this conversation with other people. Mm -hmm. So I really don't, I guess I would say I'm not terribly worried about these kind of guys. I'm sorry they attacked (laughs) you on Facebook, but, you know, in daily life, you sort of see that, the kinds of understandings that they didn't have Mm -hmm. a decade or two ago, they do have today. I mean, you know, you do see it in sort of everyday life. Yeah.
0: Well, I I would say that, I mean, I don't ever feel upset. Well, I'll say in a general way, I feel upset, but I never feel personally upset when I see someone who doesn't get it. And I, I take a look at myself, you know, I always talk about the patriarchy and how it's not just men who hold the patriarchy up, women do. And I can say that I'm guilty of that in that I have struggled with my physical appearance, basically my entire life. And it's because I don't fit what, and and let me just go back that. I mean, I used to be an actor. I lived in Los Angeles. I pursued an acting career. I was on a soap opera. I'm six feet tall. And I, you know, back when I was thinner <laughs> um, I wa- and younger, I weighed 150 pounds. So, or actually I weighed 155 pounds. And when I was 100, I, w- I was like 150 pounds for a minute and I would be kind of excited about that, but it never lasted because my body wanted to settle in at like 165 pounds. And, right. and th- that's where it would have been happy where I could have had desserts if I didn't go crazy and I continued to work out but in order to weigh like 155, 150, I had to severely restrict my calories and, and work out all the time. And I endlessly, endlessly just berated myself. And so I look at that and, and I mean, I'm still experiencing it now that I've, I'm 52, I weigh a lot more than that. And I, you know, and it wasn't because I started eating pies. It's just because my body's changed and it it just holds on to weight now and it's different. And I will say as I get older, I'm a little bit more relaxed with it, but I still feed that patriarchal narrative in my, my own, you know, body hatred, if you will. And, and so I have seen like, I've seen online where men in my opinion have evolved. And, and I, and I say that because I feel like, okay, even though I take on that narrative in my head, I want to fix it. I, I I don't want to put it out there for other women. I don't want to push that Hollywood standard beauty ideal and all of that. Um, but I... B- You know, so what I'm trying to say is like, I do see an evolution, but there Mm -hmm. are men that I've talked to in person who still kind of don't get it. They say things and they don't see it. And, you know, and sometimes I'm close enough to those people, whether they're family members or close friends or something where I choose not to get into it with them because it's, I know what I'm going to face and it's just going to be really stubborn. You're wrong. This is how it used to be. And this is how it always has to be. And so I just leave it alone. But I but I do think that we're moving in a positive direction. You know, there's definitely evidence for that. I mean, I, you know, I think
1: most of us of a certain age grew up with these unrealistic standards. I remember when I was, you know, in high school, I always wanted to be tall, skinny, and blonde because that's how you got to be a cheerleader, right? Well, <laughs> yeah. I just wasn't that tall or that skinny or that blonde unless it was out of a bottle. So,
0: <laughs> yeah. you know, well, bottle for me. <laughs> I kind
1: of, but it is true these days that you do see, you know, uh, other kinds of women you know mm-hmm. on covers of magazines yes bottling, that's true doing all kinds of things and and even you know in the case of say going back to AOC where we started this part of the conversation I mean she is absolutely gorgeous mm-hmm. in my view but gorgeous in a different way mm-hmm. and so that that's the other thing I think that's happening here you know look at Michelle Obama look at Kamala Harris you know any number of people and so I think that while those you know, those standards do prevail. It is the case that if um, you, as a woman or, or a girl, are supported in your own uh, appearance and goals, that 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 there are some greater options, so to speak, mm-hmm. uh, than than there were in the past. But I don't want to be Pollyanna about <laughs> this either. But I do think that that's something else that Kamala Harris gets to do, which is yeah. to show. Uh, That she's a strong woman as well as a beautiful one. That she's a woman, for instance, talk about non-traditional, who is not a mother. She's a stepmother, right? Yeah. And I think that's hugely important uh, for women who perhaps are thinking they don't want to have children, they can't have children, they're not with a partner, it's not realistic. For me, that's, I think, a huge piece of what she's going to be able to communicate, Mm -hmm. that I am a complete person.
0: Yeah. Right?
1: uh without having chosen to be a biological mother. I think that's yeah. absolutely huge.
0: Yeah. Wow, and that's a great point. Um you know, I'm not I'm I not mean, a mother. Think about it. Yeah. Just
1: think about it. Yeah. You know, I know that, that, you know, back in the day women were told if they wanted to run for office, that they had to look and feel and um be visible like other women, which mm-hmm. is to say they had to be married to a man and have children.
0: Mhm. Yeah.
1: And that's no longer true. That no. is a revolutionary
0: shift. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. And, you know, I mean, one of my fears, and I'll ask you about this, one of the last things I'll ask you, but, um, you know, we've got, we saw in this election, I mean, if, if, if you talk to most people, they will say, well, Joe Biden wasn't my first choice. And it's like, yeah, yeah, we've all, we've all said that. So, um, you know, I I was kind of back and forth. I I, I think I'll say Elizabeth Warren was my number one in the bigger sense, but there were days and there were times where Kamala was my number one. And I wasn't sure, you know, it's like she would she would whether it was she was in or I, I think it was like during the debates when actually I was really impressed during the debates when she stood up to Joe Biden and said, I was that little girl. Right. And, you know, it's interesting because so many people felt that she attacked him and she didn't attack him. She just basically held him accountable and she confronted him. Confronting people is not necessarily attacking people. And what I was most impressed with was she confronted him and I'm sure it made him feel uncomfortable. But what did he do? He made her his vice president. Um, Maybe that came from you know, maybe he was being told by Clyburn, maybe other people were saying, you know, you've, you've got to put Kamala Harris in there, but he listened to them and he did it. And I genuinely believe that Joe, you know, and she have a good relationship and I, and I I know they're going to have this great partnership. Um, But the concern that I have is because I see how women were treated once again, during this, you know, primary, people like elizabeth warren people and look you don't have to like elizabeth warren you you know you don't have to like where what she's talking about and i will say that she could have handled the medicare for all debate better uh she was afraid to say that your taxes will be raised i wished that she would have come out immediately without you know mm-hmm. trying to play around and just say yes your taxes are going to be raised but let me explain how it's going to save you money in the long run and I wish that she would have been more bold with that, but still, it's like the, her numbers were terrible when it came. I mean, she was getting okay numbers when it, you know, uh, the the polling numbers were okay, never in a lead. But I mean, when you look at the way that women were handled in this Democratic primary, primary, my fear is okay. So we'll go we'll go through this four years, whether Biden stays, you know, the the president the entire time or if he says okay Kamala it's all yours in 2024 you know because there is the um i'm not it's like a there's there there's definitely people who feel that it's possible and i'm one of them that he may decide m- maybe midterm to step down so that she can show everybody because he i don't think he's going to run in 20, 2024, no matter what so um if you know he could say Two years from now or after the midterms or whatever, he could say, all right, I, I'm going to step down. I'm tired, whatever. And then Kamala gets to say, here's here's me. Um, here's what I can do for you. Maybe that's going to happen. Maybe we'll take it to 2024 and she'll be the one that's running. My fear is that this country is not um, evolved enough that we're too sexist and too racist to elect. And I would say this about a white woman, but too sexist and too racist to elect kamala harris president what do you have to say about that talk me down <laughs> well
1: i, I it, my strategy which i enunciated in my book vote her in uh is uh that if all women coalesce mm-hmm. and vote for the woman candidate at every chance they get a woman can win now, that's a tall order. It We've is, never <laughs> even, you know, approached anything like that. Yeah. But the fact of the matter is, if women were to decide, gee whiz, I want to vote my self-interest and I want to vote for someone who understands that self-interest in a yeah. deep way. Right. Understands what it's like to make, you know, 79 cents on the dollar, not to be promoted, have to worry mm-hmm. about child care, all the things that women are typically uh, burdened by. You know, if every woman were to do that, not to mention the majority of women who are pro-choice, right? That Mm -hmm. approaches 70%. So, you know, that's the way to get that done in the short run. Those, you know, people can win in primaries, which, you know, don't require as many votes to win, right? Because there just isn't the turnout. Mm -hmm. So you're right. It's a really tall order. But I think on the other hand, you know, Hillary Clinton did get more votes than Donald Trump. As yeah. much as many people didn't like her, it was the electoral college that shut her out. Yeah. So I think going back to this notion of, you know, women in key states really all coalescing. Had they coalesced, for instance, in Michigan, in Pennsylvania, in Wisconsin, uh, in 2016, she would have been president. Yeah. So, yes, the racism is deep, the sexism is deep, but it's a doable deal by the numbers uh, if the right woman is running and Mm -hmm. the right people are on the ground making the case for her.
0: Yeah, well, that's true. And I mean, I I always argued that if if enough Democrats just voted, if all the Democrats voted for whoever who, you know, whoever we nominated, that person would win. And or I, I think they had a really good, strong chance at winning. But that's, you know, you take it back to Hillary. I mean, and actually they did. (laughs) Democrats did vote for her. And she still lost because of the Electoral College. And she lost because of how that Electoral College was used in social media campaigns. Like they they focused on the states that they needed electorally. And they would push out certain, you know, there, there was definitely Russian interference. But I'm not going to discount the fact that there was also, you know, right wing, whether it was from this country or any other country, right wing influences going into those states that pushed it over. So, but think about it. But but think of just just think about it for a second. Take the state of Michigan
1: where Hillary lost by less than 11,000 votes uh-huh. because the turnout in Detroit in particular was so much lower for her than it had been from Barack Obama. Yeah. That has nothing to do with, you know, right wing and has nothing to do with Russian interference. Mm-hmm. It has to do with the fact that and I hate to say this, the voters decided they didn't like her as much as they liked yeah. President Obama, and they didn't bother to go vote. Exactly. But had they voted, yes, Michigan would have gone into her column. So I really, yeah. while I think these systemic problems you're, you know, referencing are huge, it's also the case that people have to get up off their you-know-whats <laughs> and get themselves
0: to the polls. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and that's the job of, I think... I've been talking about that Democrats really should along with pointing out why the Republican party is <laughs> toxic and terrible right now. We need to do that, but we also need to to promote ourselves and talk about not only, you know, what have Democrats done for you in the past? Social security, Medicare, all that stuff, but and uh, the Affordable Care Act, the Voting Rights Act and and really explain why those things are important. And, you know, we need we need to be bold and proud. And I think we need to reclaim Mm -hmm. the patriotic. We are the patriots. We are the American Party. We're the party that's looking out for people. We're the party. Mm -hmm. Democrats are the party that wants to preserve American democracy and respect all that's involved in that. And so it's like I would love to see more of that. And I think that, you know, I mean, I'm going to be doing everything I can in my little you know, block of the, of social media and and all of that to try to push that out. And right. if I can talk to anybody who's higher up, I'm going to, because it's like Bernie Sanders. And I said this on my show the other day, but Bernie Sanders put that ad out in 2016 America and it was fantastic. It was a fantastic ad and, and mm-hmm. we'll go ahead. No, I was just going to say I agree with you, but I wanted
1: to just say that look what Stacey Abrams oh, I know. and the other women leaders in Georgia did. They yeah. did exactly what you were just saying is necessary. Yeah. I mean, they were on the ground talking to people about real issues, about real accomplishments mm-hmm. by the Democrats, helping people get to the polls, solving voter challenges, sort of doing the work right? Mm -hmm. Now that can happen everywhere. It takes money. It takes time. Most of all, it takes committed people. But I think your point about proclaiming, you know, Democrats as the Patriots and therefore we're going to do this work and help you out could Mm -hmm. make all the difference.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It totally could. And And I'm very hopeful because Stacey Abrams knows her shit. She knows what she's doing. And I'm excited to see that Jamie Harrison is taking over the DNC and I have no doubt that they're going to take her, um, you know, everything that she did and apply it to the next election. So, uh, you know, I mean, and I'm very hopeful, but I'm also, you know, I vacillate between feeling very hopeful and feeling really nervous because I know that not only... Do we have to worry about the things that we typically have to worry about in this country, which are voter suppression, gerrymandering? Uh, We've got we've got this extremism that's growing here, but it's growing globally. I know Marine Le Pen is going to run again in France. I have no doubt that Vladimir Putin is behind it. And I see, you know, I, I, I don't think that we should forget him. I think that we've got a leader right now. We've got leadership that's going to handle Vladimir Putin the way that he should be handled. But at the same time, as somebody who lived in Soviet Russia and understands the, I don't know, like it's hard to describe the the feeling that you got from the Soviet officials over there. There was a meanness and there was a coldness and there was like a cruelty to them that I think is just defines Vladimir Putin. And he wants to destroy democracies around the world so he can basically be the big dick country. And pardon my French for that, but I mean, it's just, that's what I see. And I feel like, you know, Trump was his tool and just like Marine Le Pen is a tool of his. So I think that that tool is no longer useful. That idiot is no longer useful and it doesn't mean that he's done. So, you know, that, that's, you know, going to go, whether it's the, bs walk away movement that whole thing that was the that you know black people were exiting the democratic democratic party in masses that that was totally made up and i do believe that was i think that it came from russia if it didn't come from russia it was definitely perpetuated by the trolls coming from russia and so we're going to see a lot of that now we're going to see a lot right. of that anti-woman sentiment. It's still going to be, you know, that the, the Russians played two sides or both sides, I should say, of like Black Lives Matter. They played both sides of the anti-vax thing, and the whole goal was just to get us all riled up and angry. But going back to what I said earlier about the fact that I do see men in general on social media are a little bit more evolved when it comes to some of these talking points, and I and I don't want to say. I don't want to m- turn that into men don't understand or get it per se. It's just that sometimes, you know, when I-, I didn't used to look at the way that I viewed my body as patriarchal and now I do. And so I think that like the same thing can be said for some of these men who are, you know, political junkies on, on Twitter all the time. It's like it- if it's explained in a certain way or somebody shows it to them that changes, it can change their perspective on it they oh they have a new way of seeing it and that's what i believe that i'm seeing but i also feel like we have to be very very careful because well we do I have think we have
1: to be careful and we have to organize yes I mean, we have I'm to organize really, i know you know we're coming to the end of our time here and i just really <laughs> maybe it's my own trying to look at the glass half full but i think that uh we have some great role models right now for running even when you're scared, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So no doubt Kamala Harris had moments of doubt. No doubt Stacey Abrams did. No doubt Hillary Clinton did. And all these other amazingly powerful women. And I think that what we sort of you know just have to take in hand, so to speak, is that, you know, more of us can do that, mm-hmm. put our fears to the side, put these patriarchal norms to the side and just storm ahead with other women. I just think that that's uh, yeah. we're the majority when it comes to winning on progressive issues and we shouldn't forget it. Right.
0: Well, and as you said, It's that it's that organizing that makes all the difference. And I think we not only did we see that in 2020 with Stacey Abrams, we saw it with Barack Obama in 2008 and in 2012. But he totally understood how to reach out to new voters, young voters who can make all the difference. And there's this huge pool of voters out there that Democrats really need to focus on as much as I you know, I I, I believe we need like we should never ignore any group. We shouldn't ignore moderates, but I don't think we should focus all on moderates. I think we need to really, you know, put it out there for everybody, but have a specific um, plan to get new voters in and young voters because they, re- and you know, un- un- it's like, unfortunately, new voters are, co- or, or I should say younger people are somewhat involved and interested in politics now because they're being affected in a negative way. And that gets their attention. You know, when you're comfortable, when I was 21, 20 years old, 19, whatever, of voting age, and I was young, I really wasn't paying attention to politics, because I didn't feel, I didn't feel that I was going to have to worry about anything. You know, I just felt like, oh, well, I have the right to an abortion. And, you know, I figured at that point, we would see a woman president, because I saw Geraldine Ferraro won, I mean, I'm sorry, uh, ran. And I just figured it would, it would, keep going in that direction that eventually a woman would run a woman of color would run and she would win and and I f- I felt like that's what was going to happen um but but I do agree with you I think you're absolutely right that it's about mm-hmm. organizing and it's about just it's showcasing educating and orga- organizing right yes. right
1: no that that's it and, and that way we will win I have no doubt
0: <laughs> okay so before you go is there anything you'd like to add
1: um, I, I guess I would just underscore what we've just talked about right now, which is we have a chance to you know, really take our courage in hand and fight for what we believe in. And we have people in the White House who are going to underscore our message and, and help us uh, win this fight. So I hope that the listeners feel encouraged by that, uh, even if they're momentarily from time to time discouraged <laughs> yeah. and just go for it. I think that's what we need to do. And I will join hands with anyone and everyone who wants to do that.
0: <laughs> and then, um, what was I just going to say? Oh, why, Tell us a little bit before you tell everybody where to find you, a little bit about your books.
1: Uh, well, thank you for asking. I've written a couple of books for those of you who may not know. The first one uh, was a guide for women who want to run for office, really uh, published right before the crest of women running. And now I'm glad to say that uh, lots more women are – taking it upon themselves to run for office, uh, than had in the past. It's called every day is election day. It, it, features a lot of wonderful interviews with women who've done this. And my second book is called Vote Her In, Your Guide to Electing Our First Woman President. And as I noted a moment ago, it really focuses on, on the fact that there is a winning strategy mm-hmm. for getting a woman behind that big desk in the Oval Office. And it is about women <laughs> coming together and about women asserting their right to executive office. So for those of you who are thinking about running in, you know, for mayor or even for governor or any other kind of office that you may be starting out. And I encourage you to read Voter In because it really does, you know, make the case for how we can do this uh, yeah. and we can make the world a better place in the process. So you can find the books anywhere where good books are sold at <laughs> my website and, and uh, I'm very easy to find as it happens,
0: <laughs> and, for and, better or for worse. Well, so then where can they find you?
1: It's RebeccaSive.com, okay. uh, and you'll see a pretty extensive website there and connections to uh, all your favorite booksellers, other articles I've written for Huffington Post and so on about um, the importance of this you know, process we're engaged in, which is furthering equality and mm-hmm. justice for women. So check it out if you would. Definitely. And what's your
0: Twitter handle? At RebeccaSive. Pretty easy, <laughs> mm-hmm. and and in
1: Instagram it's I think it's at voter by Rebecca Side. Okay, so that was sort of fun to do. Yeah, awesome. and there I try to put up as many uh, inspirational uh, photos and messages as I can.
0: So it's a sort of fun, uh, fun effort there to keep people encouraged and moving along. Well, thank you for what you do. I really appreciate it. I mean, I started out, you know, as an online activist for women when I finally got a voice. It was because I was talking about issues for women, and I, I mean, as much as I continue doing that, it's not my singular focus anymore. And so, I really appreciate women like you who really make it your your focus and help to educate other people—not just women, but other people on the importance right. and we need. We really need to give women like you, like support you, buy your books, listen to your words, because that's how we're going to progress. And so thank you for that. And also I just wanted to let everybody know that you can find me, um, on Twitter, author Kimberly K I M B E R L E Y. Don't forget that extra E at the end. And you can find my books and I have written books for women (laughs) on, uh, on Amazon, I've got Peyton's Choice, which is a book about teen abortion. But it's also, I want to say, I always say that. But then one of the other things that I focus on in that book is the the lead, the female lead, who's a teenager, you know, gets first time boyfriend, first time love and everything. And he's a really good guy. But occasionally, he says sexist and hurtful things. He's not trying to be sexist or hurtful. But he but it just comes out. And basically that's confronted in the book in a positive and thoughtful way where, you know, women, I remember being a young girl and, and, you know, my boyfriend might say things to me and I just kept quiet. So I wanted to address that in that book. And then I also, of course, wrote The Virgin Diaries, which is about first time sex and American woman, the pole dance, which is also a book about the importance of voting. So thank you for being my guest again, Rebecca. I appreciate everything that you do. And thank you guys for listening.
1: Thank you so much. It's great to be with you and to be with your uh, listeners. So everyone, onward.
0: Onward, definitely. All right. Well, you have a good one. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye.